Hello and welcome to the Barcast. I'm your host, Nick Barr, coming to you on a Tuesday evening. Um, we're back from summer hiatus. Um, glad to be with you. And um, we're freshly back. So it's 9.30 p.m. here, but it is 6 a.m. Uh, in Europe, where I just was. So I'm coming to you from uh, my bed um, I'm just amazed that I've stayed up this late at all. And so the acoustics might be different. Uh, my my voice is probably sleepier. There might be some like electric hums. Normally I record in my closet. Uh, but uh, hopefully this is a listenable bar cast. Uh, I, I think I have what should be an interesting topic today. At least it was interesting for me. Um, Teresa and I were in Norway, among other countries, and uh, in Norway we had some time to read. Um, and Teresa doesn't get car sick, which was great. So she she read Michael Sandel's "What Money Can't Buy" um, as we drove around uh, through the fjords, and. Sandel is a Harvard professor of economics, and I think he teaches a course called Justice that I believe is one of the first free courses um, provided by Harvard. And uh, what money can't buy is uh, essentially an exploration of uh, what what things shouldn't be on the market and what happens when they're put on the market. Uh, I was excited to read it um, or listen to Teresa read it uh, in part because it discusses like uh, moral values and um, those are things that I've never really like fully understood. I'm not saying that I'm amoral or immoral. I just, I like literally not always, I don't know what it means to have moral values all the time. Um, which is uh, a source of some uh, consternation uh, to some. Um, uh, in, in contrast, Sandel in this book is going to talk a lot about morals, and so I was excited to hear him do so. Um, I'll caveat this by saying, like, I don't know anything about behavioral economics or, or microeconomics. I've just started to kind of. Um, read up a little bit. Uh, if you if you have any recommendations, uh, I'd love to hear them. Tweet me, Twitter me. Um, I, I don't know why I never was taught it in college. I So I majored in cognitive science. And like in retrospect, it seems like behavioral economics ought to be a prerequisite for a major in cognitive science. But I never really connected the two until recently. I think I just didn't really know what behavioral economics were, and so I would uh, sort of read certain books or texts and, and take something away from them, but I never really like connected it with this kind of Adam Smith people acting out of self-interest in sort of predictable ways um, that uh, we can, we can um, sort of make use of and analyze. Uh, so anyway, I'm not going to be exactly like a uh, 
a great listen here. This is going to be me stumbling through um, what I've learned. But but what uh, what I think is going to be interesting is right after we read What Money Can't Buy by Sandel, we read um, a couple of Robin Hansen posts. Um, if you don't know Robin Hansen, he uh, also, I guess, is a economist. I'm not sure. I don't. I don't really know what his... Well, I have this website, so let me see if he says where he is. Well, I don't know. But he's certainly uh, certainly interested in the same fields as Sandel is, but approaches them from a very different perspective. And uh, I wanted to read with Teresa um, a post that... Uh, by the way, I wish Teresa were here, but she's... Uh, uh, in Europe, so I'm I'm going solo on this one. Sorry, Terry. Um. Anyway, he uh, he got in, I guess, a lot of trouble uh, because he he wrote about uh, sex redistribution, and we'll we'll get there. But it it wasn't I, I somehow missed all the controversy, and so um, I wanted to read it. Anyway, um, we're going to talk about Sandel's arguments. We're going to talk about Hansen's arguments, and then we're going to compare them. Um, and see see where that takes us. So, uh, what money can't buy, um, basically is a pretty straightforward thesis, which is that market norms crowd out sort of moral norms or, or social values. And uh, I don't know what crowd out means, but basically sort of push out of the way. I think crowd out itself is sort of like an economic piece of jargon that I don't think Sandel ever really explains, but uh, he gives so many anecdotes and case studies that you sort of get the gist of it. So uh, I'll give uh, one example, and it's it's a classic in the field. I was I was familiar with it, which is um, Israeli daycare. So uh, in in somewhere in Israel, uh, parents drop off their kids at daycare, and then they pick them up at three. And what was happening was a lot of parents were late. They're picking their kids up late. And so that's a pain for the folks who work at the daycare. So those folks um, had an idea, which was like, look, we should uh, we should charge people for being late. I mean, this is this is unacceptable. So let's charge them 20 bucks uh, if, if they arrive after three. Um, and so sort of traditional um, economic reasoning would say that, okay, well, that that will um, cause parents to pick up their kids on time. But in fact, what happened was the opposite. Uh, parents picked up their kids even later than ever. More parents did. Um, and, and the reason for that was that uh, these parents sort of reinterpreted the relationship with the daycare center from like, gosh, I, I should be on time and I feel bad for being late. I've sort of inconvenienced this person to, oh, uh, arriving late is a service I can pay for and it's priced at $20. That's, that's fine. Um, so some, something sort of transformative happened. Um, the, the good, uh, uh, Sandel says, standard economic reasoning assumes that commodifying a good, 
putting it up for sale does not alter its character, um, but he's going to point out in that and many other cases that it does alter its character. Um, it, it, when we talk about altering its character, Sandel uh, uses the word corruption, which I think is interesting. So uh, let's talk about uh, prostitution briefly. Uh, many people would be against uh, prostitution, in other words, uh, commodifying sex, right? Putting sex up for, for money. And, and there are really like two, uh, arguments that are very different. Why, why someone might oppose prostitution. Um, one is fairness. So essentially by, um, commodifying sex, it might, um, disadvantage some people. Um, women might be disadvantaged. Um, socioeconomically um, challenged women might be particularly um, sort of uh, sort of coerced into doing this. Um, so so there's sort of like a whole fairness and injustness angle there. Um, but there's another angle, which is to say, like, let's say we we have some ideal society. Uh, let's say it's like Amsterdam plus plus. You've got this red light district, but everyone is is treated really well and, and paid well and, and um, uh, very happy about it. Uh, you could still have uh, an opposition to um, prostitution on moral grounds, which is to sort of say, by putting sex on the market, you corrupt you corrupt the sex act. Um, you corrupt the thing itself. Um, I think this is interesting. I, I, I struggle with it probably in the same way that I struggle with moral values because like uh, if you go back to the Israeli daycare example, I don't understand how that's like corrupting the thing itself. It's, it, I mean, you could say it's transforming it, but see what it seems like what you're doing is you're transforming the motivations of the actors. Like there's not some like core civic duty that you're transforming. Is there? It's just... It's just you've 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 shifted the brain states of the people who are acting. They used to think um, of this as one way, and now they think of it as a service. Whereas with prostitution, like I'm I'm not sure if anyone's brain states are being changed. They may be, um, like, are, is motivation being changed, um, or or is there really like a, a transformation happening to the sex act? I think this isn't just semantics. I think it matters because, like, for instance, if you think the sex act itself is being corrupted, then picture this ideal society and uh, you go talk to a prostitute and you say, like, hey, what do you think of all this? And she's like, it's amazing. Uh, I'm a feminist. Um, I feel empowered when I do this. Um, I feel... Uh, I, look, I used to be married and that was horrible. Now I... I have so much agency, um, more than I did even in my marriage, uh, blah, 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 blah. If, if the thing itself has been corrupted, then you'd have to sort of say that this woman is wrong. You would say like, look, um, I'm glad that you're happy, but you're, you're living immorally. Um, so I think that's what Sandel is saying. He doesn't, he doesn't come out and say that because I think that that's like, uh, potentially sort of derails his argument. But, but when you're talking about corrupting the thing itself, then I think you are saying independent of the motivation or independent of the sort of the mental states of the, of the actors, uh, 
um, they may be acting uh, immorally. I mean, I mean, they're participating in a corrupted um, activity. Um, Sandel uh, oftentimes kind of leans on uh, our intuition to to surface when market norms are crowding out values. He'll sort of, which I, I liked, you know, but he'll, he'll, he'll sort of call out things as repugnant. Doesn't this feel repugnant? And then sort of just move on as if like it feeling repugnant is um, proof of market norms crowding out moral norms. And, and we'll talk more about that in a bit. And another sort of wishy-washy, hand-wavy thing that Sandel does is is sort of like point to some ec- economists who um, talk about the sort of scarcity of altruism, and then he he kind of flips on on his on its head, but in, in kind of an, an equally sort of I don't want to say lazy, but just not convincing way. He writes, altruism, generosity, solidarity, and civic spirit are not like commodities that are depleted with use. They are more like muscles that grow stronger with exercise. One of the defects of a market-driven society is that it lets these virtues languish. To renew our public life, we need to exercise them more strenuously. I think that's like kind of inspiring. I don't know, but I just don't know if it's true at all. Like it doesn't uh, doesn't seem that well thought out. Uh, and and it also seems like if if it is true, it still should it still should like. Um, accommodate some kind of economic model, right? Again, I don't, I don't know anything about economics, so I can't, can't say much. But like, let's let's say that these things exist: altruism, civic spirit. Uh, all these things exist, and that as you use them, you, um, you 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 get more of them, or, or they grow stronger. Like uh, that, that still seems mathematically modelable. Um, but that's, that's really not Sandel's like bag. Uh, it is, uh, Robin Hansen's bag. He's, um, I think eager to model, uh, lots of things. Um, I think he, he is the exact sort of economist that Sandel is worried about. Um, and many people are worried about him, uh, because he wrote, um, a blog post called Two Types of Envy. And um, uh, I missed it, but it, it, it caused quite a stir, I guess. Um, and I'll, I'm going to try to summarize it. Um, <laughs> I mean, it, it totally makes sense. Like, I mean, I read it with Teresa and, and it's no surprise that it caused a stir. And, and I can't, I can't really believe that he didn't, think it was going to uh he he starts basically by like um shitting on people who are um kind of championing income redistribution uh or or um fighting inequality um <laughs> he he uh I'm, I'm looking at it to see if I can. Uh, if 
I can, okay, well, you should, you should just read it. Uh, and I'll put the link in the show notes, but, um, basically he's saying, uh, you know, if you look at how these people act, um, what they're saying is, um, uh, they're trying to stoke envy and anger among the poor. They're trying to remind the poor that they are poor and that they should consider revolting. Um, and they kind of want to remind everyone that a revolt might happen. Like there's a little bit of a threat of violence um, if redistribution doesn't happen. Um, and so then he's he's like, I'm confused why that's okay. But then if you look at another kind of inequality, which is um, sex inequality, um, something similar is happening. Um, you have what are called incels and they're on like forums Um commiserating with each other, self-identifying as incels, saying that we're the lowest of the low in terms of access to sex. Um, and then they're threatening violence and sometimes uh, enacting violence through terrorism. Um, uh, so so one could argue that um, these people have even more of a right to do what they're doing than, uh, than income inequality champions because actually sex... Um, inequality, those people are suffering at least as much as in an income inequality. You know, it's a little bit of a myth that um, income inequality is that painful compared to sex inequality. Um, you can make the case that sex inequality is much worse. Okay, that, I think I think that's basically the summary. Um, uh, so um, that the post itself is not is not like super relevant to Sandel, except that of course it, it is talking about sort of market norms. Right. Um, and, and, uh, many people found, uh, Hansen's post and Hansen himself, uh, repugnant for writing it. And, uh, he got attacked. Um, and then, uh, I really liked the follow-up post he wrote, uh, on May 2nd called Why Economics Is and Should Be Creepy. And that's the post that I want to focus on. But it, it, the, you've got you've to understand the first post before you can understand the second one. Um, in a way, it's like I'm almost like a little bit touched by it. He, uh, <laughs> so, I guess, so I guess he writes this original post about um, sex redistribution and gets gets killed online and and a slate article was written called is robin hansen america's creepiest economist uh, economist um and and hansen uh kind of riffs on this notion of creepiness um the creepiness of his writing the creepiness of the idea of sex redistribution and by the way i, I guess i should mention like i i think i think hansen's post the first post is extremely uh um, provocative, but not in a, I don't mean that in a complimentary, it's, it's a little bit like maybe a little bit lazy. Like he just sort of says sex redistribution. He's later going to say like, look, there's many ways to redistribute sex, right? So for instance, like robots, um, sex robots could be created. Um, but I don't think he does anything in the first, in the original post to sort of like ease concern. And it, it very much reads like moving women around, um, and so like, I, I get the, I get the outrage. Um, uh, but anyway, so, so, um, people call Hanson a creep and they say, 
Um, uh, you know, sex redistribution is extremely creepy. And Hansen in this, in the second post, uh, agrees. Uh, not, and not only does he agree that, um, the post is creepy and the idea is creepy, but he sort of says, like, as economists, we sort of have a, a, a duty to be creepy. Um, this is what he says. He says, economists studying personal worlds have also bothered a public, uh, Oh, well, have I, have I missed something? Sorry. As you can tell, I'm, I'm like all over the place. I'm jet lagged, but, um, well, I, yeah, no, I, I think this is the right quote, but uh, I might have to do some explaining. Economists studying personal worlds have also bothered a public that hears of economic concepts applied to personal worlds but using words originally associated with official words. So he's doing a little bit of like separation of, uh, of the, the official world and the personal world. Uh, he starts the post with sort of uh, the Jesus passage of render unto Caesar what's, what is Caesar's and render unto me unto mine, whatever. What does he say? <laughs> uh, render therefore unto Caesar the things which are Caesar's and unto God the things that are God. Um, so right, so this is the separation of personal and official, um, which behavioral economics has sort of started to blur. Um, for example, marriage markets, dollar value of a life, price of fame, below optimal crime, or my recent sex redistribution. This can seem to violate common norms separating official and personal worlds, which I'll call world norms, such as that money should stay out of friendship or governments stay out of conversation. And this can make economics seem creepy. So now he and Sandel are in the exact same turf, right? Um, Sandel does mention the word creepy sometimes, but typically he'll, he'll say something like repugnant or disquieting. Um, but, but unlike Sandel, who sort of seems satisfied to stop there, Hansen, um, goes one step deeper, which I really appreciate. And, and it's like, well, okay, well, why, why are we feeling creepiness and what is creepiness? Um, and citing some, some other paper, he kind of concludes that uh, creepiness is essentially threat ambiguity. Um, in other words, not, not quite knowing um, whether there is a threat or not. Um, uh, this is, this is the, the, uh, the other paper. The perception of creepiness is a response to the ambiguity of threat. Males are more physically threatening to people of both sexes than are females. They're more likely to be perceived as creepy by males and females alike. The link made by females between sexual threat and creepiness is also consistent with the fact that females are simply at greater risk of sexual assault, blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, while they may not be overtly threatening, individuals who display unusual patterns of nonverbal behavior, odd emotional responses, or highly distinctive physical characteristics are outside of the norm and by definition unpredictable. This may activate our creepiness detector and increase our vigilance as we try to discern if there is in fact something to fear or not from the person in question. Interestingly, our results indicate that we do not necessarily assume ill intentions from people who are creepy, although we may still worry that they're dangerous. Most of our subjects believe that creepy people cannot change, and only a small minority of subjects believe that creepy people are aware that they are creepy. Uh, so it's sort of this this deep dive into creepiness. Um, and so Hansen kind of concludes then, quote, uh, 
Mostly such norms, and he's talking about these, these world norms, probably exist because in some past world, violations often led to bad outcomes. For example, bad things happened then when people tried to buy sex with money, or when governments told people what to believe about religion. Thus, someone who violates world norms can seem like a threat, and people who consider such violations consider creating a threat. So when economic when economists consider world-crossing concepts and policies, ordinary people can see them intuitively as a threat. So I, I think that's like wildly speculative. He's saying, uh, yeah, so anytime you're, you're or, or most of the time when, when, when some of these kind of uh, norm-crossing phenomena feel creepy, it's because uh, 500 years ago or 1,000 years ago or 10,000 years ago, whatever, um, they were incredibly threatening. And so we sort of have this vestigial raised hackles when we talk about, let's say, prostitution, uh, because maybe 10,000 years ago, uh, it, it was a threat to women or even to society. Uh, but it's vestigial. Uh, I, I don't, I don't buy that, but I, I don't, I don't necessarily disagree with it. It's, I think it's, it's, compelling enough that it really cripples Sandel's argument of like, well, this is repugnant. Um, but I think like what's the most exciting and interesting to me is um, both Sandel and Hansen are sort of like privileging intuition and introspection here, which is to say that like um, inspect how you feel with these scenarios. Um, are you disquieted? Uh, do you find it abhorrent? Uh, like, are you repelled, right? So I think abhor, uh, uh, well, I mean, let, let's, let's talk about these words. So disquieting, I, I, I think is like associated with creepiness. So, um, if, if something's disquieting, it, it's, it makes you uneasy. Um, uh, abhorrent, um, I think is, is like, it's an abomination. It's repelling. So you want to get away from it. Um, Repugnant, I think repugnant is probably derived from like some kind of fight, like pugilism. So if if it's repugnant, you it's it's repelling, but I think you might want to like lash out at it and attack it. Um, and I wonder, I, I wonder about these these words, like whether they have they trace their way back to. Um, sort of visceral reactions that themselves, like, uh, I don't know, are maybe interestingly different. I have a feeling without knowing Hanson that well that, like, for him, all of it can kind of basically be explained by uh, self-interest. Um, but maybe maybe there's something else there, right? I mean, maybe there's something about civic duty violations that would create some sort of visceral reaction in us that we can then trace back not to, let's say, threat to personal life, but threat to sort of like our way of life. Um, I don't, I don't, I don't really know, but, but I'm excited by the idea that like by inspecting the way, by inspecting the way these things make you personally feel you may somehow be able to like work your way backward into policy. Um, 
Cool. Well, I, I think that's all I've got to say on this topic. I wish it, I wish I was a little bit uh, more coherent. Um, this would have been um, probably a, a, a lively discussion if we had one, but um, I was eager to get this out while it was fresh. Thank you for joining me. See you soon.